I invite you now to turn with me again in the scriptures to Matthew. I want to go look at Matthew again, but this time Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, and I want to read the first 14 verses. Matthew 24. Beginning to read at verse 1. This is the word of God. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and I will, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you do not, yet you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And I want to look in particular with you at verse 13. The words of our text are framed in those words. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing once again to our hearing, reading, and the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gather here in Salem with me this afternoon. This morning, we've had the great privilege to be fed by the hand of the Lord in a very particular way. We heard from the Lord that he had come to save us from our sin and, and, and with that remnant, we rejoice because with them, we are well aware of our need of salvation. That remnant that we heard of this morning, Mary and Joseph and Anna, Simeon, Zechariah, Elizabeth, their faith has already become sight. At this very moment, they worship around the great white throne in the very presence of him who has saved them. We heard this morning that that same salvation, that same glorious reward is still reserved for all of those who know themselves to be part of that same remnant. And, and this morning our hope came to a visible expression in the elements of the sacrament. We saw through the eyes of our faith, we saw the broken body and the poured out blood in the bread and the wine. And we were reminded that he did it all for us. To save us from our sins. And as church and as individual Christians, we celebrated Christ's victory this morning. But the reality of the fact is that his conquest 
didn't seem to have had much of an impact on the world. What I mean is, we know from our Bibles that immediately after his ascension, his disciples were persecuted and many of them died a martyr's death. And that persecution of the church has continued all through history. And what makes it all the more frightening is that Christ himself warned us that it would be so. Furthermore, the life of the individual Christian also can be and often is very difficult. As we walk the road of life from this world to the next world, life is often perplexing and difficult and even painful. We confess and we believe that we are always under the watchful eye of the Good Shepherd, but oftentimes we are confronted with circumstances that seem to belie the fact of Christ's authority. Oftentimes it appears that Satan has the upper hand rather than Christ. To what end then? this great victory of Christ that we celebrated this morning. Well, our text of this afternoon points us the way. I administer God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, persevering until Christ returns. Persevering until Christ returns. We will learn that such persevering is often difficult, and then we want to see that such persevering is always glorious. So, persevering until Christ returns, the difficulties, and it's glorious. You know the story. Shortly before his final suffering and death, Christ spoke to his disciples of the things that must come to pass. Things will happen, said Jesus. Things will happen that will bring much tension and strife, and the disciples must have sensed something ominous in the words of Jesus, especially in the way that he bids farewell to the holy city. Just prior to the passage we read this afternoon, Jesus surveys the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often have I not tried to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is desolate. And the disciples, they listened to his words and they probably wondered what it all meant. And then as they began to leave the city, the disciples point out the majesty of that glorious temple. They see it standing in all of its radiance. They see the temple in her glory sparkling and gleaming in the eastern sun. And their hearts are troubled at Jesus' words. They marvel at the glory of Jerusalem. But in the context of Christ's words, they now begin to wonder, will it really be as Jesus said? The thought seems inconceivable to them, and Jesus, knowing their troubled hearts, makes it even plainer. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another and shall not be thrown down. In other words, Jesus wants them to know of the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem, including the temple, will be reduced to rubble. But that's not at all what the disciples had expected. Remember now, they too were of the Jewish race. They were a product of their culture. And from that perspective, they could not imagine a life without their holy city and its stately temple. Jerusalem was not simply the capital city. It was much more. It was the holy city. The temple was God's own house. It was the place of God's presence. Jerusalem and the temple were places of great significance for the Jews. 
Read once the Psalms and listen to the recurring theme of the psalmist as they long for the house of the Lord. Has the heart about to falter in its trembling agony? Panteth for the brooks of water, so my soul doth pant for thee. Yea, a thirst for thee I cry, God of life, oh, when shall I come again to stand before thee in thy temple and adore thee? Read the history of the Israelites as they sat by Babel streams and wept over their captivity and they longed for Jerusalem. So too for Daniel as three times a day he turned to God in prayer facing Jerusalem, God's holy city. city. It's still so today. Jerusalem holds great significance for the Jews. And so the disciples began to question, have, have, have we got that right, Lord? Will God let all of this go? Will God let this beautiful temple, his temple, will God let it be destroyed? Indeed, says Christ. And what's more, understand well, the catastrophe that will befall Jerusalem will only be the beginning. In fact, the falling of the temple will be the beginning of the destruction of the entire world. My dear congregation, <coughs> We can almost imagine the perplexity in the hearts of that little band of disciples. The disciples are confused. They understand that all of this prophecy of the Lord must have something to do with the return of the Lord. And, and now <coughs> they ask him for a sign. When will this be, Lord? How can we know? And Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He teaches them that many things must first come to pass. He speaks of wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising up against kingdoms, nations against nations, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and all of these things, says Jesus, they're just the beginning of sorrows. After those beginnings, things will get even worse, says Jesus. There will be great tribulation. Many will be killed for the faith and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended and will hate one another and still it will get worse. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many and, and, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. All of these things will take place before the Son of Man returns. Pay close attention with me now. The great tribulation that awaits this, this earth before the second coming does not exclude the gathering work of Christ building his church, for that too will continue. But the point of Jesus here in this passage is that the coming of the kingdom will be by way of great sorrow, tribulation, and persecution. In other words, in other words, Christ continues to gather, to defend, and to preserve his church, but it will be by way of pain and sorrow. And in that context now, the words of Christ of our text, in our text, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. People go, it's not hard to imagine that for these disciples, the words of Jesus must have felt like like a, the blow of a sledgehammer catching them right between the eyes. This was not the way it was supposed to end. Oh, how they had fantasized about the glorious future they would have with Jesus when he establishes his throne on earth in Jerusalem, in the temple. Jesus was going to be their king. 
Jesus was going to save them from the hated Romans. They had envisioned a majestic kingdom and a glorious future with their Lord as their king. How devastated they must have been now to learn that not only would it not be so, but instead the city and the temple would be ruined. That's not right, Lord. But capture this with me now. The same confusion and rude awakening awaits us if we think that the life of the Christian is one of peace, harmony, and glory until that last great day when Christ returns. Many people believe and even teach that, you know. They present a kind of a name-it-and-claim-it Christianity, meaning that if only you will accept the Lord, then everything will be going your way. But people go out according to our Bibles. That's not so. And if we are not well informed about what the Bible says about what actually awaits us in this life, then we too will find ourselves unprepared for the great difficulties that will certainly confront us in this life, even as, and especially, as Christians. Congregation, if we're somewhat familiar with the scriptures, then we're not completely surprised that the life of the Christian is marked by difficulty. We know of the great conflict that faced Israel all of our history, and that conflict culminated in that atrocity of Golgotha. Oh, how bitterly they had cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You remember the scene. So much hatred against him filled their hearts, and they were even willing to have the guilt of his death spill over unto their children. Crucify him, and his blood be upon us and our children, they cried. But such sinfulness in the world has to have consequences. It will not be possible that men and women can so spurn the grace of God and yet go unpunished. And so God begins to pour out his wrath on Jerusalem, the city that stoned the prophets and upon the people of Israel, who for the most part had rejected the Christ. And that rejection of the Son of God has consequences. It is that the palmist, as the psalmist writes, the sorrows of the wicked in number shall abound. And that is precisely what we have seen and continue to see also in our own world. There has been a wholesale abandonment of the Lord by the nations. And there shall be no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Our own world has experienced two world wars and appears to be making preparations for a third. Indeed, the gospel has gone out into all the world, but for the most part it was rejected and the prophets were stoned. Man has dreamt of peace and prosperity and instead tragedy, catastrophe, anguish, fear, pain, misery, terror, and abounding sorrow and all of it because because of a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God pours out his anger upon the wicked world. But, although God begins to pour out his wrath upon the ungodly world, the church of Christ is not left unscathed. The saints of Christ, although not of this world, are still in this world, and they will suffer with the world. Pay close attention. In the context of our text, God used the hated Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps you know the story. As God's judgment upon those who rejected the Christ. But there were still pious, uh, godly saints who also lived in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and that faithful remnant 
was to be found in Jerusalem and they too would suffer along with the ungodly and it is still so today. As ungodliness increases, as our world sinks ever deeper into moral degeneracy and immorality, as men and women stray ever further from their God, or to say it as Christ did in our text, because lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, as we move closer and closer to the end times, as the world more and more rejects the gospel, lawlessness will increase and life will become ever more difficult for Christians. That's what we are to expect. But, but, but persevere, says the Lord, for he who endures to the end will be saved. Think with me of what that perseverance, that endurance would have meant for those disciples. Jesus had just told them of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That was unthinkable to them. He had warned them of the great tribulation that was sure to come. That was unexpected for them. He had alerted them to the fact that great catastrophes would take place because of the world's rejection of the Messiah and that Christians as well as non-Christians would suffer because of that sin. Jesus has said that the children of God would suffer along with the world because of their proximity to the people of the world. And Jesus reminded them that all of this suffering was because of the world's hatred for the gospel and the rejection of him who stood at the center of that gospel. <coughs> Christ had assured them <clears throat> that the world will hate you because it has also hated me. And all of that would have begun to slowly sink into their greatly troubled minds. And now, in just a little while, Jesus would gather them around himself again. And in this deeply troubling context, he would instruct them with the most terrifying words. Go into all the world and be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, but go into all the world with the message of salvation. People of God, if those disciples harbored any thought at all that they would also be able to escape the tribulation because they belong to the Lord, Jesus has just torn the very ground out from under their feet. Jesus called them out of their complacency and into militancy. Jesus is sending them out commanded them to preach, but more, he called them, pay attention, he called them to preach the very message which had provoked the world's anger. They were to go out into the world and they were to carry with them and boldly proclaim the precise thing that provoked the world's hatred, the gospel of salvation. If I may say it this way, Jesus, in, in essence, was placing a target on the backs of these disciples, and he was sending them out into the firing range as sheep among the wolves. Can you even imagine the turmoil that must have reverberated in the minds of these disciples as they walked with him out of Jerusalem that day? But he who endures to the end will be saved. It must have seemed almost inconceivable to them 
It's almost as if Jesus was playing games with them. It's almost as if he was mocking them. The world hates me, so they will hate you too. They will persecute you. They will smoke you out of your holes. You can run, but you can't. You may run, but you cannot hide. In fact, you are to stand up and you are to make it widely known who you are by preaching Jesus Christ, whom they hated and killed. And then he sums it all up by saying, and if you endure, then you will be saved. But now understand well with me. If we do not read with discernment or do not know our scriptures, then it would seem that Christ places their eternal destiny in their own hands. That is what we hear in just this text. If I was to paraphrase it, we could say that Jesus says, if you endure to the end, then you will be saved, so it's up to you. But that's not so. No, if, we were to, if, we were to, if, if, if it were up to us to earn our salvation, there would be no hope. But praise be to God, salvation is a gift. It is a gift to be received with a believing heart. Man can add absolutely nothing towards his own salvation, and yet and yet God does give us a task to do. God forbids it that we would become little more than spectators in the bleachers. God forbids it that we would sit on our laurels waiting for that final day when Christ returns. That's what the Thessalonians were wanting to do. Oh no, oh no, while waiting to be translated to glory in the church, triumphant, Christ calls us to Christian warfare in the church militant. If we are to be saved, people of God, it must be by God's free grace, without, but without Christian commitment, endurance and perseverance, without that perseverance and endurance, no one will see the Lord. Continue to follow me. When we now speak of persevering, then in this context, Jesus is first of all referring to the great tribulation that will confront Christians in particular and Christianity in general, especially as we move towards the last days. And when Jesus says that we must persevere, he promises that it is God who perseveres in us, but at the same time, he insists that we use the means given us to preservation. You see, God promises to equip us for this battle. God promises to give us the ability and the strength and the courage to persevere. Oh, indeed, Christian perseverance is a gift of God, but we need to understand how this gift is received. For instance, if you're expecting a check by regular mail, it will do you no good to wait by your email box. You will never receive it that way. And the same is true here. God gives his grace, indeed, but he gives us grace via means, and ours is the obligation to faithfully use those means. Ah, the Heidelberg Catechism captures that thought so eloquently in Lord's Day 45, where we read, why does a Christian need to pray? Answer, because God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts. Did you hear that? Did you, did you catch that? God gives his grace only to those who pray asking for it. How are we to persevere then? Through prayer first of all. Well, let me ask you, is it your habit to spend much time in prayer? Do you continually pray? Do you groan inwardly? <coughs> 
pleading with God daily for his grace and his Holy Spirit, do you beg of him the necessary grace to stand strong in the face of the world's hatred for you? When life becomes hard, is it your habit? Is it your practice? Is it your heart's desire even to press hard to God's altar in prayer? Do you pound on heaven's door, imploring God, begging God for the grace to persevere in this dark and dying world heading to its own destruction? And if your honest answer is no, do you expect God to grant it anyway? You're at the wrong mailbox. It won't happen. He promises to give his gifts, but only in his way. And he gives his grace by the pleadings of his people in ardent prayer. But also, he gives his children the necessary grace and strength for life via the word and the sacraments. And in particular, that word as it is preached in the church. People go out, I never tire of saying, and I'm sure I've told you before, but I never tire of saying that something happens during the official preaching of the word that happens nowhere else in the same way. You will not, you cannot leave this place today in the same way as in which you entered it. Every time the word of God comes to you, it demands a response on your part. Even to not respond is a response. It's a response of disobedience and unfaithfulness and unbelief. Let me ask you then, if the world situation and your own future in it troubles, maybe even frightens you, do you hunger for the word of God to strengthen you? My dear people of God, if we're going to face tomorrow with confidence, we need to check our spiritual resources. How much time do you spend in the word? How eagerly are the word and sacraments received by you? How much time do you spend in prayer? I think it was Martin Luther that said if he didn't have three hours a day to pray, he was too busy. Three, three hours. Some of us, three minutes perhaps. How is it with your personal and family devotions? People got. is there not a real danger even for us that we fail to adequately use the particular means God gives us to prepare us for the great tribulation that we and our children will experience as we see the end times approaching? Is there not a real danger that because of our own complacency, our own lukewarmness in these things, that we will not have the wherewithal to endure? And then what? For without it, you cannot be saved. Jesus has just told us that those who endure to the end, those are the ones who will be saved. Congregation, how it will go in our life <clears throat> is unknown and uncertain. And yet this much stands firm. If we persevere using the God-given means of receiving the necessary grace, then God perseveres in us and he preserves us to the very end. Oh, we admit that the life of the Christian can yet be very difficult. 
Think of what this, all of this must have meant for those disciples as Jesus explains what will happen to Jerusalem and to the temple and to their world. And from scripture and from our own church history, we know how greatly these men suffered. James was murdered. Peter miraculously released from prison, but later also killed for his faith. Stephen stoned. John banished to Patmos. And what about the persecution and imprisonment of Paul? <clears throat> and yet, and yet, and yet, in all of their struggles, they went out speaking boldly of the Christ. And when they suffered persecution, when they stared certain death in the face, they responded by singing of the mercies of the Lord. Capture this with me. For all outward appearances, humanly speaking, the lives of the apostles seem to have been a great waste. All of their lives, tension, heartbreak, disappointment, persecution, all of their lives they suffered for the gospel, all of their adult lives chased out of almost every town they visited. <coughs> and then finally, at the end of their lives, no retirement plan, no comfortable pension, only a martyr's death. Their backs to stripes, their tongues to be cut out, their very lives to the fire. But despite the pain, through the power of the Holy Spirit granted them by their constant prayers, they were able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have endured to the end that I consider my earthly suffering a small price to pay that, that I gladly pay for the crown of righteousness that is laid up and kept safe for me in glory. My dear people of God, with the songwriter we sing, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me. Of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. How true, how very true. How difficult can be those weary day, ways. How often would we not like things to be different in our lives. Sometimes we fear that our lives just won't turn out right they won't turn out as we had planned. We had made all of these glorious plans. We had, we had dreams and visions for a, a long and <clears throat> glorious future. Oh, life was busy and harried and sometimes uncomfortable, but we had planned and expected and looked forward to a pleasant retirement. But suddenly things went wrong. Things went so much different than we had planned and now all of our plans for the future, all of our dreams have fallen through our fingers and they lie shattered at our feet. Or sometimes sickness interrupts our lives, either our own or that of a precious loved one. Perhaps an illness that will not be cured. That's not the way it's supposed to go, Lord. My plans were so different, Lord. We looked for a cure. We expected life and health and happiness, but it's all going so different than we had planned, and it's all so difficult and it's so painful. Lord, I have a family. Lord, I have a wife and children that need me. Lord, I have a husband and small children that still need their mother. How's that all going to go with them now? This isn't right, Lord. And what about the brokenness in this world? Brokenness in our own families. Brokenness within our own marriages. Tension between husbands and wives, parents and children. What about the moral degeneracy all around us in our nation? 
What about the wholesale abandonment of Christianity in the world and in our land? And what about the threat of global terrorism? What about the tremendous influence of the recent worldwide Palestinian uprising? Oh, rightly did Jesus say, when the Son of Man returns, will there be any faith left on this earth? But close to his breast, sheltering under the wings of the Almighty, all is and remains well. Capture this with me from our text. Jesus was walking out of Jerusalem with his disciples, and he speaks of the impending destruction we can almost envision them riveting their eyes on Jerusalem's pride, the temple, as, with, as they with great sorrow contemplate the words of Jesus. But capture this with me now. As devastated as the disciples were about the destruction of the temple, it was, in fact, a great blessing for them. They would not have understood that as yet. But you see, that temple had to be destroyed to make way for the new dispensation. The temple was still the Old Testament center of worship for the disciples. That had to change. The time was coming and now is where they were to worship in spirit and in truth with Christ, not the temple at the center. That idol temple had to be removed and God saw to it that it was. The Romans destroyed it some 70 years later. And people of God, the same is true for us, if only we will see it. Still, so many idols need to be torn down in our own lives. So many idols have been built by us, and the more precious these earthly and temporal things become to us, the more necessary it is for the Lord to take them away for our own good. The more we are called to suffer, the more we stand to lose the greater our pain, the more anxious our concerns about the future, the fiercer the persecution for righteousness' sake, the closer we are driven to seeking shelter under the heart of God. Is our turmoil in life, is it then not a good thing? My dear people of God gathered here with me in Bowmanville on this Sunday afternoon, life is hard. Life is often painful. Life is filled with perplexing questions, the answers to which are known only to God. On occasion, the pain and the sorrow that confront us as we weave our way through human life can bring us to despair. But be of good courage, because all your suffering on this earth is designed by your Father in heaven to create in you a longing for eternal rest, peace, and glory. It to create in you a longing for that time and that place where tears shall be no more. Christ has fed us by his word and spirit again this day. He has stood before you and has extended the gospel invitation the means of grace was set before you again in order that your faith in his promises of eternity might be strengthened. Indeed, but he's also strengthened us for our journey to that new Jerusalem. For some, that journey may be very short. For others, 
there may still be a long way to go. And long or short, the road is often uphill, rocky, painful, and even dangerous at times. But if you have heard the voice of your Savior this day, then with me, your heart and your soul are as overwhelmed with peace, knowing that he who has begun his good work in you will never abandon the work of his hands. In confidence now, people of God, go back to your homes. Go back to your daily work. Confidently looking to tomorrow, come what may, knowing that he's got the whole world in his hands. Shall we pray? O Lord, guard me well as one would guard the apple of the eye. While deadly foes are pressing hard to thee, O Lord, I cry. Let thou my rest and refuge be, O let thy wings o'ershadow me. And when in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied.